Good evening. Very happy to be here this evening. Um, you know, I, I got home this afternoon and just kind of reflected on the day that we've had so far, and it's uh, it's been a good day. Um, I hope that, uh, I mean, I've been very edified by by what we've done here today, by the the sermon we heard this morning, by the communion service, just very moved by by this Lord's Day and, and by our worship today. And I hope that what I have to say to you this evening will be uh, edifying as well. Um, uh, thank you, Matthew, for leading that song. He asked me what, what song I wanted, and uh, that's what I picked. It's one of my most favorite songs, but it fits very uh, well with uh, the, the subjects that we have this evening. We're going to talk about the cross this evening. I've entitled it The Power of the Cross, and... To start off, I want to go all the way back to Genesis, and we'll pick it up in Genesis verses, uh, chapter 22 and verse 2. It's a very familiar story, something, uh, probably one of the most, uh, most familiar stories in the Old Testament. It's about Abraham, and we'll pick it up in verse 2. He says, And God, and God said, Now take thy son, thine only son Isaac, whom thou lovest, and get thee into the land of Moriah, and offer him there a burnt offering upon one of the mountains, which I tell thee of. And we know the rest of the story, right? Abraham, he, they get to the place where God tells them to be. He starts preparing the altar. He lays the wood in order. He puts Isaac upon the altar. And just as he's going to lift up the knife to slay this son, this son that God had promised to him, the angel of the Lord stops him, and he says, Now I know that you fear God. And in verse 14, it says, And Abraham called the name of that place, The Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, In the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. So we called this place, The Lord will provide. And in the King James Version, it says, Jehovah Jireh. But that's what this means. So, and before we get into our study, I want to look at... Uh, what this this mount of the Lord is or what the land of Moriah was. The only other time that the land of Moriah was mentioned was in second was in Second Chronicles three, verses one. It says, Then Solomon began to build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem in Mount Moriah, where the Lord appeared unto David's David his father, and the place that David had prepared in had prepared in the threshing floor of Ornan, the Jebusite. So this was the same place, this land of Moriah was the same place where eventually the temple of God would be built. And I don't know about you, but that's something that I had not known for a really long time. Uh, just, just was studying uh, a couple months ago and, and found this. And so this is the same place where the temple of God was built. It's where, uh, where Jerusalem was, was, uh, was eventually established. So we know Two, that that's where our Lord was crucified. In the same place that Jesus or that Abraham named, the Lord will provide. In Genesis 22 and verse 15, it says, And the angel of the Lord called unto Abraham out of heaven the second time and said, By myself I have sworn, saith the Lord, for because thou hast done this thing and hast not withheld thy son, thine only son, in that in, that in blessing I will bless thee, and in multiplying I will multiply thy seed 
as the stars of the heaven and as the, and as the sand which is upon the seashore. And thy seed shall possess the gate of thine enemies. And in thy seed all nations of the earth will be blessed because thou hast obeyed my voice. You know, this is a story of incredible faith through Abraham. And through that faith, God reaffirms his promise to him. He reminds him of the covenant that he made with Abraham long ago. He says, all nations will be blessed. You know, and it's, it's hard not to wonder if, if that very place was the place that eventually Christ would be crucified. And I know, you know, ultimately it doesn't matter, but the most important thing is the promise that, or, and the, the promise that was reaffirmed to Abraham in this moment because of his great showing of faith. And it points to a Christ. And if you were here yesterday with Ian, he said, you know, the Old Testament points to the Messiah and everything afterwards points back to the cross. So that's what we're going to talk about tonight. Sorry. We're going to talk about the cross. The cross is the ultimate symbol of Christian faith. It's, but to Christians, it's much more than a symbol. It's a symbol that's given reverence to, but, that's, but it also represents, it also, it, I'm sorry, it re- represents ultimate sacrifice. It means victory over sin and over death. You know, as, as I was getting this lesson together, I was thinking about the plan that God had for his people and how, and how he, his plan for the kingdom. And I thought, I, you know, how much did Satan, how much did the devil know about all this? It's no doubt we know that Satan knew some of the prophecies and the scriptures. In his conversation with Jesus he, in the wilderness, he quoted scripture to him. But in Matthew 16, verse 23, uh, well, this, I'm sorry, this is, I'm using the wrong verse. We're not going to use that. Anyway, back to, back to the devil. What I believe he didn't know was the concept of sacrificial love. After all, how could a righteous God love sinners so much that, would, that he would come to the flesh, come in the flesh and die for them? And I think that that's something that Satan did not understand. It's something that we have a hard time grasping as well. So we're going to look at some of the ways that the, the, ways that the cross impacts our lives today. Through the cross, it gives us direct access to God himself. In Hebrews 10, verses 18, it says, Now, where remission of these is, that there is no more offering for sin, having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiness by the blood of Jesus. So in, in the old law, they had the temple, and inside the chambers of this temple was the holiest, or was the holy place, and then the holy, the holiest, the holy of holies. And only the high priest was allowed to enter into the holy of holies once a year to offer atonement for the sins of the people by way of animal sacrifice. And this holiest of holies is where the Spirit of God dwelt. And so to an ordinary person, an ordinary person had no access to God. And even this high priest had access to God one time a year. So when Christ died on the cross, that, the veil that was covering that holiest of holies was split. And that signified that the barrier had been broken. And now we have access to God. We have direct access to God through the Son. Hebrews 4 verse 14 says, seeing that 
we have a great high priest that has passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. For we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the th throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace and help in time of need. So Christ now is our high priest, and he gives us access to the Father. It says we can approach God with boldness. You know, I would have to imagine that back in the Old Testament that the job of a high priest was a rather intimidating thing, to say the least. Um, and we hear different stories, it's not in Scripture, of the things that they would do to ensure that, uh, that, that they weren't struck dead inside the dwelling place of God. It was a very serious matter when they went into this holiest of holies. They were entering into this, the very dwelling place of God. But because of the cross, we can approach God ourselves. And we can, it says we can approach him with boldness to bring him our cares and our troubles. What an amazing gift that we've been given that we can submit our cares to the creator of the world. But you know, all too often I think that we take that, we take that uh, blessing for granted. You know, I, I think about my own prayer life and a lot of the time I'll, I'll rush through my day, I get in bed and I thought, oh, I need to pray. And, and then I just fall asleep in the middle of my prayer. And, you know, I think God deserves a lot more than that. He deserves our reverence and he deserves more than our half-hearted attempts of prayer. We need to take our prayer life to God seriously. We're able to talk to the creator of the world. 1 Corinthians 3 verses 16 through 17 says, Know ye not that you're the temple of God and that the spirit of God dwelleth in you. If any man defile the temple of God, him shall God destroy. For the temple of God is holy, which temple are ye? <clears throat> so no longer does God dwell in the temple, but rather he resides in the heart of his children, in the hearts of his children. And we can all have that blessing. We can all become a child of God today. Next, the cross expresses the seriousness of sin and the depth of God's love. No one is righteous. In Romans 3, Paul presents the one big problem for man, and that is sin. And we'll read this. It says, What then? Are the Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to, uh, to, swift to shed blood in the paths, and their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world might be held accountable to God. For by, every work, for, for by works of the law, no human being is justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. You know, when I preach, I'm a real big fan of doing my best to try to let the scripture speak for itself. And this paints quite a picture for us, doesn't it? 
it's an ugly, ugly picture, but it shows just how God views sin, how ugly it is to him. And you know, there's nothing that we can do on our own to fix that problem. There's, there's nothing. We're all sinners. But how many of us have tried to validate our own, ourselves, our lives, by our good living, just being a good person? But, you know, being a good person will never be enough to be justified in this side. It says that the whole world is going to be held accountable to God. Even by the works of the law, no man can be justified. You know, even as Christians, I think that we're real good at trying to be righteous on our own, rely on our own righteousness. But, you know, relying on ourselves, relying on our own goodness without Christ is, is pride. It's just pride. Romans 3, verses 23 through 26 says, For all have, come sin, have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, by, by whom, God, whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in His blood, to declare His righteousness for the remission of sins that are past, through the forbearance of God, to declare, I say at this time, His righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. You know, I, a couple weeks ago, I believe it was on Christmas Day, Hugh gave a, uh, a sermon in, about gift giving. And one thing stood out to me there. He mentioned the, the ten lepers that were healed by Christ. And only one remembered Christ. Only one remembered to turn around and thank him for that. You know, sometimes we do that our, ourselves, don't we? We forget about the cross. We forget about the blessings that we have through the cross. We forget the enormous gift that we have been given in Christ. We forget the blood that has made atonement for our sin, for my sin. We forget that our lives, our blessings, our abilities are only because of the power that the cross brings to our lives. And if you'll remember that passage, it says that that one leper, he turned around and he fell on his face and he worshipped. He worshipped Jesus. It's a great act of humility. To truly survey the cross in light of my own sin, in light of our own sin, should bring total and complete humility. Luke 18 verses 10 through 14 says, Two men went into the temple to pray. The one a Pharisee and the other a publican. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself. He said, God, I thank thee that I am not as other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this publican. I fast twice in the week. I give tithes to all that I possess. And the publican, standing afar off, would not lift up so much of, as his eyes unto heaven, but smote upon his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone that exalted, exalteth himself shall be abased, and everyone that humbleth, humbleth himself shall be exalted. You know, one thing this, the Pharisees are very well known for is their pride, right? And really a complete inability to see their heart, see their sin, the sins of their heart. But so who was the Pharisee putting his confidence in here? It wasn't God. He said, God, I'm so glad that I'm not like these other people. I fast twice in the week. I give tithes. 
ah, ah, ah. In contrast, though, what did the publican do? He knew that his only hope was in God. He had absolutely no confidence in his own abilities to gain righteousness. He knew his only hope was in God. You know, I wonder if the Pharisees' own personal struggles with pride were ultimately why Christ's teachings were so hard for them. And I think, of course, that that's the reason why, or one of the reasons why. They were about obtaining righteousness on their own accord. Matthew 20, 23, verses 27 says, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whited sepulchers, and indeed appear beautiful outward, but are within full of dead men's bones and all uncleanliness. So, like I said, when it came to matters of the heart, the Pharisees did not seem to care all that much. They only cared about how it looked on the outside. And Christ puts it rather bluntly here. He calls them hypocrites. And this serves as a reminder to us that we've got to take our own sin seriously. We've got to take matters of the heart seriously. You know, it's real easy for us, I think, to get into maintenance mode. Maintain the exterior, all the while not confronting what's, what's in here. The parts that nobody else sees, right? But Jesus wants our heart. What type of person are you when you're alone? What do we indulge in? What type of language do we use when no one else is around, right? Well, we've got to make sure our actions... What we practice, who we are as Christians, mirrors who we are all the time. Not just here, not just around other Christians. You know, I know we say stuff like that a lot, but this is so important. Because you know what? People from Alton or Halfway, Plainview or whoever, or wherever know where Sawyer Pinkerton goes to church. People from Floyd Ada and Lockney or Barwise or Plainview know where Titus Miller goes to church. And I'm not calling Titus out either. I'm just making a point. But we are all a reflection of Christ and the church that he shed his blood for. We're a reflection of the church that he bought with his blood. So we have to act and conduct our own lives in a way that brings glory to that sacrifice. As teachers, as preachers, as servants... In Christ's church, we have a great, great responsibility. And that responsibility has been placed on us to reflect Christ in the way that we live our lives each and every day, not just in here. We can't just maintain an exterior. Ultimately, God knows who we are. He knows. But I think the antidote for a hardened or a sick heart is to remember the cross. And... Again, I appreciate the song that we led. Lest I forget thy love for thee, for me, lead me to Calvary. We've got to go back to the cross. That's why it's so beneficial and necessary to come around the table every week and never forget what Jesus did for us. John 15 and 13 says, Greater love hath no man than this, than a man lay down his life for his friends. A couple weeks ago, Dee gave us an excellent lesson and he, he asked a question that I've been pondering on for a while then, and it's a fairly simple question, but he said, do you realize 
what Christ paid for the kingdom. And uh, again, it's, it's a fairly simple question, I guess, uh, when you think about it, but uh, uh, it's, it might be a little more difficult to answer. But from a very basic, fundamental human perspective, he gave his life, right? So from a physical standpoint, life is, is the most important thing to man. The cross gives our lives value. Because of the cross, we see value in other people's lives because we know that life has a soul. We know that we have souls. God breathed the breath of life into Adam, so we know that our lives are a gift from God. And we're commanded to use our lives serving him. You know, it's no surprise that as we see society or man start to move further and further away from God, we see those same people have let, placed less and less value on a human life. And it's because the memory of the cross is far, far away from them. 1 Corinthians 1 verse 18 says, For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved is the power of God. So to the world, this gospel is foolishness, right? It's, it seems crazy. Why, why do we pray in our prayers sometimes things like, we long to be with you, Lord? How can we find hope in difficult situations? How can a Christian find hope in dying? How can Craig, how could Craig have gotten up here and given that lesson this morning? It's because of Jesus. It's because of the cross. It's because we have hope. Romans 8 verses 24 says, In this hope we are saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, then we wait for it with patience. How can a Christian look to God who he cannot see and understand that his way is better? You know, if you were here yesterday, Ian mentioned the passage in Isaiah. He said, my ways are not your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts. Who hopes for what he sees? If we have not been called to the wisdom, to worldly wisdom, but to God, to godly wisdom, the cross gives us hope. It gives us a whole new outlook on life. And just recently, I was able to witness a baptism of someone who really had been estranged from God for years and years. In fact, I think there was a time that this person didn't even believe in God. Now, he has rededicated his life to Christ. He was rebaptized, and his whole outlook on life from that point, had changed. And hopefully his, his family's expectation for his life has dramatically changed as well. Hopefully he can bless his family and future generations because of the decision that he made. Other thing is that the cross gives us power over the flesh. Romans 8 verses 1 said, 
There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit." So the cross has given us power over the flesh. Now, what does Paul mean when it says that the righteous requirement of the law is fulfilled in us, might be fulfilled in us? It means that Christ's righteousness is imputed to us when we obey him and, we're, and when we're baptized. We see another example of this in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. It says, for, he, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We receive Christ's perfect record of righteousness when we obey him in baptism. So then the requirement of God's law is fulfilled in us because of our washing in his blood. Later in, verse, in Romans 8, in verse 12, it says, So then, brothers, we are debtors. But not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are the sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry, Abba, Father. You know... Romans 8 is a beautiful chapter, and I've been studying a lot, but he talks a lot about the dynamics and the difference between the flesh and the spirit. And he gives a warning for those who are living in the flesh. He gives a, a blunt warning. He says, if you're living in the flesh, you cannot be pleasing to God. I think he said that earlier in the passage. But he makes the comparison to this flesh and the, and the spirit, and he likens that to being he likens that to from being enslaved or adopted and those are two completely different things right <clears throat> so once we've been forgiven for our sin why would we go back to it later why would we pick it back up because what does he call it here? Falling back into fleshly desires is slavery. Why would we want to be entangled and imprisoned by the sins that we fought so hard to get rid of in our life and the struggles that we fought so hard to get rid of in our life? 2 Corinthians 10, verses 3 says, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty, in God for the pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. So we fight a spiritual battle today, not a fleshly one. And those battles that we face in life cannot be overcome solely on our own or by willpower alone. We can't fight those Spiritual battles with weapons of the flesh. So what is this pulling down of strongholds? 
What are the strongholds in, in our own lives? I think it could be a number of things. Here in 2 Corinthians, Paul is specifically referring to teachers, to false teachers that were causing problems in the church. So there was definitely a spiritual battle that was, that was going on with these people that they were facing. And to combat that, no doubt it took lots of prayer and study to combat these, these false teachings, right? But, you know, there's numerous strongholds in our own lives or society or in society that we face today. And those strongholds from a carnal, fleshly perspective sometimes can seem insurmountable to us sometimes. The challenges that we face in our own lives can seem like they're almost it's almost impossible to overcome. And the truth is, without God, they are. We think about different things that we face, and from a, maybe a societal perspective, think about the world moving further away from God or false teachers, enemies of God and His Word. But there's also personal struggles. There's addiction, there's anger, there's bitterness, there's lust, envy, strife. There's bad family situations that we have to deal with. Life is messy. There's things that we have to, that, there's battles that we all have to face. And if we're not spiritually equipped to handle these things, they will tear us apart. They'll destroy us. And speaking of insurmountable things, I'd like to read Joshua 6. Verses 1 through 5, speaking of the battle of Jericho, it says, Now Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. None went out and none came in. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand. With its king and mighty men of valor, you shall march around the city, all the men of war going around the city once. Thus shall you do for six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. And on the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times. And the priests shall blow the trumpets. And when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall shout a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat. So this is another fairly familiar story to us in the Old Testament. But like Abraham, it took a great amount of faith to believe in what they were doing here. Jericho's, or the battle of Jericho and what they were doing there, they weren't fighting that battle. They didn't tear those walls down with physical tools, with physical weapons. They did it through their faith in God. And, you know, Jericho's walls represent the strongholds that we encounter in our own lives. Again, these things seem impossible to us, but not with God. To tear down those walls in our own lives, it takes a tremendous amount of faith and obedience and basically doing what God tells us to do. That's how we see those things in action. And I'll go back to our passage in 2 Corinthians The thoughts and the teachings contrary to God's word, like that wall, are a resistance. They're a stronghold. Pride here in the Corinthian, in Corinth, had exalted their thinking and blinded these people from the truth. 
We read earlier, what we read earlier in 1 Corinthians, the message of the cross had become foolishness to these people. But Paul knew that it carried with it the power of God, and he was emboldened by that. He was emboldened by the cross. He was emboldened by his preaching of the cross. So our approach to pulling down the strongholds in our own life always has to be to get in God's Word, to spend time in prayer, to allow God's Word to reshape our lives, reshape our thoughts and our attitudes. Romans 8, verses 35 says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. I know we read that passage this morning, but I'll remind you there's nothing that can separate us from God. There's nothing that we can't overcome any battle that we can't overcome if we have God. And as I said earlier, Romans 8 focuses primarily on the battle between the flesh and the spirit. And if we're in the spirit, the carnal, world, the carnal things of this world become a lot less important. But it doesn't mean we won't have problems in life, but we know that we can face them with God. Earlier in the chapter, it says, And we know all things work together for good to those who love God and who are called according to his purpose. You know, Romans 8 is such a beautiful chapter. If you haven't, I encourage you to, to study this on your own. But he, he talks about how there's freedom over death and over our fleshly bodies. He talks about how those in the spirit will one day be liberated from the corruptible. We'll be liberated from our corruptible bodies. And then he goes on to say, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? What a, a great God that we serve. And I think we could all say that God is good this evening. So just to summarize what we've talked about, the cross gives us access to the Father. Through Christ shedding blood, when he died on the cross, the veil was torn. And now through his blood, we have access to him. The cross expresses the depth of sin, but also the depth of God's love. And we need to take our own sin seriously. The message of the cross and being in his blood requires our whole heart and commitment. The cross gives us hope. And we had a great message of hope this morning. And the cross gives us power over the flesh. We are debtors. To God, to Christ, we owe it all. Everything we are and every blessing that we have is owed to him. Praise be to God. That is all I have this evening. We'd like to offer the invitation at this time. If there's one that has been taught and wishes to obey their Lord in baptism, we urge you to not put that off this evening. If there's one that does need to rededicate their lives to God or needs the prayers of the church, we ask that uh, you come too. We can pray for you, and we'll do that as we stand and sing.